And I want you to think about those very words. Are you willing to let go of that which you cannot really keep in order to gain that which the Lord has for you that you ultimately cannot lose? The exchange is beautiful. We exchange our broken, sinful lives for His sinless perfection and gain heaven and that relationship with God. Let me ask you a question. How well do you deal with change? Some of you immediately kind of look at someone else that you know that does not do well with change. Uh, Some of you perhaps are change averse. I mean, you just don't like anything in your world or your life to be altered in any way, shape, form, or fashion. Some of you eat change for breakfast. You get bored if things aren't constantly changing. Some of you have been through change recently. Maybe you've gone through a move or a transition from one place to another or one time to another. We, we have laughed about this. Our youngest daughter, Heidi, is change averse. She does not like it. And, and uh, some time ago, we changed the backsplash in our kitchen, literally 18 inches of tile uh, around a room, very, very you know, small, and, and that was the straw that broke the camel's back. She dropped her backpack after school and said with an exasperated voice, there's just so much change in my life right now. <laughs> now that was at that point uh, eight or nine-year-old Heidi. And I said, sweetie, you've got a lot of lessons to learn about change. There's a litany of jokes about change with denominations and how different religious stripes deal with change, mainly centered around the changing of a light bulb. Maybe you've heard some of these. You think about it. How many Methodists does it take to change a light bulb? One to change the bulb and four to plan the potluck, so it takes five. How many Pentecostals does it take to change the light bulb? It takes one to change the bulb and nine more to pray over the powers of darkness and push them back. And on and on we go. How many charismatics does it take to change a light bulb? And it's, I hope I'm not offending anyone. I'm just poking fun at all of us. We'll, we'll end with Baptists. But how many charismatics? Well, it doesn't matter. Any of them can change the bulb. Their hands are already in the air. How many televangelists does it take to change a light bulb? Well, it takes at least one to change the bulb, but... If you want the message of hope and light to continue, if you'll send in your donation to... Well, never mind. We don't want to go there. How many Southern Baptists? Yeah, we got to bring it home. Latest count, it takes about 109. Here we go. You ready? Seven on the Light Bulb Task Force subcommittee who report to the 12 on the light, Light Bulb Task Force, appointed by the 15 on the deacon body. Their recommendation is reviewed by the finance executive team of five, which uh, place it on the committee of the eight, uh, on the agenda of the 18-member finance team. If they approve it by motion, they'll bring to the 27-member church council and bring it before the church for a vote. And on and on it goes. Their recommendation then must be reviewed by the ethics committee to make sure that they buy the best possible bulb and to make sure that it's not in any way connected to or affiliated with Disney World. They report back to the deacons who then commission the custodian to make the change and by then the custodian recognizes that there are at least four more bulbs that have gone out. And the actual short answer is this. How many Baptists does it take to change a light bulb? And the answer is change. Why change? We don't like change. We're a peculiar tribe. 
Sometimes we fuss and fight over trivial things that don't matter because we don't like change and we like our preferences. But that leads us to this place of Joshua 1. And as we look together today at Joshua 1, I want everybody to look this way because here is sort of the, the, the backdrop for this sermon. We're going to walk back and forth across a bridge. A bridge of then and now. A bridge of what God's activity in the lives of His people looked like then and what the activity of God looks like in the lives of us, His people, today. And as we walk back and forth, I, I pray that we would draw parallels from what the people did and how the people responded and what God had promised. And as we look at those things, maybe it will be for us like holding up a mirror and asking questions. Are we willing to set aside preference? Are we willing to set aside those things that don't matter? Are we willing, as Michelle has sung and led us to think about, are we willing for the sake of the cross to let go of those things that we cannot keep in order to gain those things which we cannot lose. Last Sunday we began this series. We started with the first nine verses. As we looked at them, it was an individual call. It was an individual call to Joshua. We see a commissioning. It was a, a call to courage, if you will. Joshua was away with the Lord, and for background's sake, you know that Moses, the leader of the people of God, the servant of God, has died. And now Joshua has this daunting task. Change is inevitable. Moses is gone. He can no longer be our leader. He's dead. And Joshua will assume this role. And God speaks to him and says, Joshua, be strong and courageous. Walk with me. Spend time in my word. Do not let the word depart from your mouth. Be careful not to turn to the left or to the right. Be careful to do all that is in it. But I want you to see that there are now a people that need to be mobilized for action, to move out and to possess the promised land. You, you see, we'll learn this over and over again in this study. It's very significant that this study is about the faithful activity of God amongst His people. And God is still faithful today. Amen? God is faithfully working and moving today amongst His people. And, and it's a community effort. We need to see this. God does not just work in a vacuum of the hearts of one or two, but He works amongst His people. And as I speak to you today, I want us to think about this. What we see happening in the lives of the people of God then reflects and mirrors often what we see today. Just for context, let's start on our side of the bridge. In the United States of America in 2017, nine out of every ten churches is losing ground in its community. That, that means that they are either in a state of decline in membership and baptisms and giving, or they're simply not growing at the pace of the population growth of their community. They're losing ground. But I, I, don't wanna, I don't want to paint a bleak picture. There are churches that are being revitalized. There are churches that are coming back to life. They're rediscovering the missional purpose of God and the faithful story of God that has continued it at times becomes their story. And when it does, their hearts and their lives are reignited with great passion. I would say it this way. It is a sin for us to be good when God calls us to be great when we stop short of all that God has for us and therein lies the, the rub because we can manage change if we determine we're going to follow God on our standards. But when God begins to call us to a level of deepening obedience, it moves us beyond our own preferences. It moves us beyond our own comforts. 
And that's exactly what we see here in Joshua chapter 1, starting in verse 10 and moving forward. We've already read the text together, so for time's sake, we'll just begin to move forward. We, we desperately need to grasp this. Now, I put some things in your notes that hopefully will flavor where we're going. I want you to see this, this statement. A people mobilized for action involves the interaction of qualified leadership, unselfish persons, with unified common goals. This could be a business principle. This doesn't necessarily apply to the church, but it must apply to the church. For the people to be united, there need to be qualified leaders. There need to be godly leaders. There need to be leaders who are walking with God. And as they do, they hear the voice of God. And as they hear the voice of God, they guide a united, surrendered people that are unselfishly willing to follow leadership and follow the Lord. You see, it's not about me as the pastor of a church telling you this is all that God has for us. I'm not the one that sets the agenda. God does. And yet the design is that God has established leadership in the church. We have leaders in our church that, that if they are walking with God, you ought to emulate and follow, including the pastoral staff. Someone has said it this way, leadership is influence. Let's put that on the board. Leadership is or equals influence. Fill that in. Now, I know you say, Scott, this could be a business lecture in some business class, but it's fundamental for us to see that this book is so replete with examples of good, healthy, biblical leadership that it's important for us to see. Now, as we think about leadership being influenced, and maybe this intrigues you, it does me, leadership is a fascinating enigma to me. How you get people to do things that maybe they don't want to do, maybe they despise doing. Tom Landry, who's a longtime NFL football coach, said, my job, I get paid to make grown men do what they don't want to do so that they'll be able to do that which they want to do. And if you think about it, leadership is not... Um, it is amoral, it's neutral, it's not moral or immoral. You can add those qualities to it, but leadership is influence. And so you can have godly leadership and you can have wicked leadership. You can have very good leadership and you can have poor leadership. Let me move it to a different place. Spiritual leadership then is moving people from where they are to where God wants them to be. My task as a spiritual leader in this church and in this community is to help guide and influence and direct and at times push and at sometimes pull, but to encourage you from where you are to where God wants you to be. That is my role. And as we think about that kind of a role, the, the, the critical nature is that we see here People often assume that the leader just comes up with the vision. And there's a quote that I wanted you to see. It's in your notes but not on the screen, and you can read through it. Henry Blackaby, in essence, said this, the role of a spiritual leader is to get along with God, determine God's agenda, and then move people there. Our desire as a church is simply no more, no less, not to become the biggest church, not to become the, the latest and greatest fad of a church, not to become anything other than what God would desire us to be. And so God's agenda is advanced, listen to this, God's agenda is advanced through leaders who are followers and followers who are submitted to leadership. Fill those things in. And as you contemplate that thought, recognize what I'm saying. Joshua, in these first nine verses, has walked with the Lord. And the reason that I think it's important for us to see this, both in priority and chronology, 
is that the very first word of verse 10 links these together. And I love it. What's the very first word there in verse 10? Then. Then Joshua. Then Joshua commanded. When? After Joshua had heard from the Lord. After Joshua had walked with the Lord. After Joshua had found encouragement and direction from the Lord. After God had given to Joshua guidance. Then Joshua moved. Then Joshua commanded. And far too many times we have men who by their own design have decided that they're going to make up what they want a church to look like. What they want a people to do. And at times that leadership is anything but spiritual because what they are doing is moving people from where they are to where that man wants them to go. God forbid that we ever come to that place. Oh, may it always be said of Hardy Street Baptist Church that then the people were directed. After I and other leaders have spent time with the Lord and said, Oh God, what is it that you would desire from us and for us? Oh God, where is it that you would want us to go? What is it that you would want us to do? And it's easy for spiritual leadership to be masked by selfish agenda. And when it is, it's oftentimes even given the the God card. A, A pastor, many a pastor has stood and gritted his teeth and said, Well, God told me to do this, so we're doing that. I believe with all of my heart God clearly speaks to us through His Word. And He gives us direction. So I have no problem saying God told us to do something. But you have the Spirit of God residing in your life and there is a check in your spirit about what God told me. If you're not being selfish and opposing it, then I need to to perk my ears and listen. We together need to say as a community of believers, God, we want what you want. Not what I want, not what you want. We want what you want. And so let's look together. I want us to see six identifying markers of God's work in the lives of the people. We could look at this from various vantage points, but what I want us to see is what the people actually did, starting with the leadership. Number one, true leaders, true spiritual leaders, walk with God unreservedly. Again, the verse starts with the word then. Then Joshua commanded the officers of the people, saying... He began his instruction after clear instruction from the Lord. He began to move in their lives as he heard from God. In fact, I'll share it with you this way. You've heard these things before. I shared them on a Wednesday night. True spiritual leaders can be marked with these three things. And this is anyone. A true spiritual leader knows the way, goes the way, and shows the way. Fill all three of those in. That means that you walk with the Lord. You know the way to go. And then you show the way to others because you are going the way yourself. This is the pattern of disciple making. This is the pattern of disciple making. Think about it. If you have stopped short in your life as a disciple maker, you've said yes to Jesus. Jesus, I love you. I'll follow you. I'll live for you. And what that means is I'll go to Hardy Street Baptist Church. I'll go to Sunday school. I'll give money. I might sing in the choir. I might serve somewhere. But, but don't talk to me about sharing my faith. That's a little uncomfortable. That's a change that I'm not ready for. Don't talk to me about leading someone else spiritually, God. I'm just not quite there. Well, true and authentic spiritual leadership encompasses all of these. You know which way to go, and you actually go that way yourself, and then you show others. And so Joshua, who had walked with God in these first nine verses and had walked with God throughout his life, this was not a new thing. He's heard from the Lord. 
We saw 40 years earlier him claiming the promise of God as he went out as one of the 12 spies and he said, we can take the land. And they wandered because of their disobedience in the wilderness. True spiritual leaders walk with God. Number two, true spiritual leaders operate decisively. This is significant for us to see. Joshua immediately began to walk through with the the leaders. Look at this in verse 10. Joshua commanded the officers of the people, go through the camp and tell the people. And he told them what to tell them. Get provisions. Ready yourself. For within three days you'll be crossing the Jordan to go in and take possession of the land. So he tells his leaders, you pass through. He tells them to tell the people, you prepare to possess. I mean, it's clear. He's operating decisively. And again, leaders can misuse their authority, but I want to tell you that it's critical for us to to make decisive operation part of what we do. We joke about it, but we if we have to have 12 committees to change the light bulb, then sometimes we need to stop and recognize maybe just maybe there's bigger fish to fry. Maybe just maybe we need to hear the alarms that are going off and the people that are dying and perishing, spending eternity in, in a Christless way apart from Christ. How dare we fight over trivial matters when life and death matters are in the balance? Amen? How dare we find ourselves so comfortable with what we're doing that we make no decisions that make any impact on eternity? And for you and for me, we must decide, are we going to operate decisively? Are we going to operate as business as usual and just continue the flow of coming to church and gathering and and going through the motions of church? Are we going to obey the commands of God? And, And that's an individual decision for each and every one of you, all of our hearts. But but it is a collective decision. We must determine what kind of church would God have us to be? What kind of people would God want us to be? Number three, I want you to see this. True spiritual leaders delegate wisely. I think there's a beautiful pattern here. Two things that I see in the text. Number one, it's a good thing that he has officers. He immediately goes through and he says, to the officers pass through the camp. I'm glad that they're there. We know that they were divided out under the leadership of Moses. Moses' father-in-law had told him to get some leadership in place. That's critical. But the second thing is he has responsible officers because they do it. You know, I'm convinced that, that the movement of God in this church and in any other church will not come because of, of uh, the leadership of just one or the leadership of a few. But it comes when they are faithful followers who are submitted to godly leadership. When a man will stand and in the marketplace live out his faith, it makes all the difference in the world. I have to tell you, there's something strange that happens when I walk into the marketplace at times. People find out, I don't know how, they sometimes sniff it out. They say, are you a preacher? And I go, why, do I look sick? I mean, is something wrong? And and they, they struggle then to be real. They put on a mask and they want to talk differently. They want to act differently. But when a genuine witness from a man of God or a woman of God or a student who lives out their faith authentically on their campus is seen, it ignites great passion. 
And for you and for me, my job is not to go and reproduce sheep everywhere. No, my job is to be an under-shepherd. Your job is to do that. My job is to equip you to reproduce sheep. My job is to equip you to do the work of ministry. That's what the Bible commands me to do. And anything short of that is a a horrible, tragic mistake. And when I get to the place where I think I need to do all of it and, and recognize I'm being as transparent as I can, I'm not trying to shirk responsibility. If I'm equipping people, I'll be busier than I could ever be trying to do it all myself. But if I'm the one that has to be at the hospital all the time or be in ministry situations all the time, then I have failed miserably. Joshua told his leaders, you go and pass through the camp. You go and prepare the people. You go and share. He knew how to delegate wisely and multiply himself. Now, Joshua still has work to do. In fact, in just a moment, we'll see him go himself to two and a half of the tribes. He'll speak to a situation. But here's what I would say. If you don't trust leadership and you don't believe and own the mission of the people of God, then I doubt that the gospel message will ever be anything other than duty. You will go out perhaps and witness because you've been arm-twisted and compelled by guilt. Oh, but there's something joy-filled. Church, listen to me. There's something so joy-filled when people begin to get it, when the light bulb goes off and they say, God has a plan and a purpose for me. When you recognize you have a part in this great and glorious vision. And I'll say it this way. There are members of this church that are deacons and Sunday school teachers and leaders who have chosen to deny their own agendas. Who have chosen to lead others in following God. And I'm so thankful for you. I pray that your tribe would increase. I had a man that came to me this week and said, "Would you, Pastor, would you go to lunch with me? And I I certainly don't want to put him or anyone ever on the spot. But he said these words, I'm in, tell me what to do. Where do you need? Where do you need help? Where do you need work? What's the next step? What should we do? And my heart beat fast. And I texted my wife and said, can we clone this guy? The reality is we don't have to. God is raising them up in this body. Men and women who are faithful to the call of Christ. Here's my question though. If the vision is to be owned and shared, do you know the vision? I've been here 18 months now. And 18 months ago, I sat down and I put together a simple vision frame. It came from Scripture. If you've not read this, I would encourage you to pick one up at a Connect station. Go back through it. I very simply said, we want to be very focused on being four things. We want to be a a hub of disciples that make disciples. We want to be a catalyst for spiritual awakening here in the Pine Belt. We want to act like a true faith family, which means intergenerational. We would reach all generations. That means that we would set aside preferences of things like music and worship style, that we would simply say we're going to worship the Lord because the object of our worship is far more important than the the style of our worship, that the substance of what we do is the most important thing. And a family will reach across barriers. They may be racial barriers. They may be economic barriers. They may be geographic barriers. But we're going to reach across barriers so that we can get the gospel to the nations and to our neighbors and to the next generation. Do you know the vision of this church? Do you know the core values of this church? If not, I want to encourage you to begin to go back and think through those things because if we're going to delegate, you've got to own the vision. 
And it's not about you saying, well, I'm going to get on board with Brother Scott. No, I'm not asking that. God told Joshua, let's walk across the bridge. God told Joshua, this is my plan. My plan is bigger than you. It's been around a lot longer than you. 500 years before, he made the promise for this land. He said, Joshua, you can get in on it, and I want you to lead my people to get in on it. So what I'm asking our church family to do is nothing new. It's nothing beyond what I've asked of you for the last 18 months, and it's nothing short of what I'll ask you for the next 18 years. We want to move from where we are to where God wants us to be. And if you're honest with yourself, wouldn't you say, Pastor, that's what I want anyway? Deep down at some level, you say, I want God to be in control of my family. I want God to be in control of my finances. I want God to be in control of my tongue. Hello? My relationships. Some of you have given God, I surrender all except for my speech. I surrender all except for my money. I surrender all except for my time. Jesus Christ is either the Lord of your life. He's either Lord of all or He's not Lord at all. Submit and surrender to Him. Number next, number four, spiritual leaders. Communicate clearly. I love this. He very simply said to them, pass, provision, possess. Walk into the land. I would say it this way. Just because the water is muddy doesn't mean it's deep. Some of you will appreciate that later on. I can get real cloudy with the things that God wants us to do. We can go in 27 different directions. What I want us to do as a family of faith is make disciples. I just want us to help people grow in their faith, nurture their faith, and move from where they are to where God wants them to be. As clearly as I know how, in that vision frame and in sermons, I've tried to say this is what it means to be a disciple. A disciple knowing, growing, going. They know Christ and they make Christ known. They grow in small group real relationships with one another and they go for Christ to our neighbors, the nations, and the next generation. I want you just for a moment to everybody sit up straight. This will be sort of intermission time. Make sure everybody kind of resets. Everybody sit up straight. Take in a deep breath. Let it out. Make sure that I have to give full instruction. Some of you are going... I want you to say with me, knowing, growing, going. You ready? Knowing, growing, going. Knowing Christ and making Him known. Growing in Christ in small groups, shared life, real relationships. Going for Christ to our neighbors, the nations, and the next generation. In that little vision frame, and I'm pointing back to that because I, I most clearly spelled it out there as I worked with leaders, there are metrics to say, am I really knowing Christ? Am I really making Christ known? Am I really growing in Christ or am I just going through the motions? And so I want to challenge you to look at those things. The, the fifth thing that we see is that godly followers will value community over personal vested interests. It comes straight from our text. Let's walk back across the bridge for just a moment. Two and a half tribes had already been promised land on the east side of the Jordan. And now he's saying, we're going to cross over the Jordan. And they go, wait a minute. 
Hey, Joshua, don't you remember Moses back in Numbers gave us land on this side? We're staying over here. And he said, yeah, but don't you remember? You promised you would go and fight with and for everybody else, and then you could come back. If you want background, look up Numbers 32, 1. You can see the land on the east side of the Jordan was wonderful for raising livestock, and these were nomadic herdsmen, and so they wanted to stay there. And he said, that's fine. You can have the land. God's given it to you, but you first must go and fight with the other people. Now let's walk across the bridge. This may be one of the most important things I say this morning. For us as godly followers, see I've talked about leadership. Leaders operate with decisiveness. They walk with God without reservation. They communicate clearly, but you need to see, they delegate well. You need to see this. Godly followers defer their own preferences for the greater good of God's purpose. These two and a half tribes could have said, Moses told us this is our land, we're staying here, you go fight. They didn't. They weren't fighting to possess land for themselves, they were already there. They were fighting because it was the right thing to do for the greater community of God's people. And it was keeping their word, keeping their oath. You see, they had united around this. They said, I can trust a leader who is submitted to the word of God, one who is strong and courageous. And if I cannot trust such a leader, maybe it's because I'm not submitted to the word myself. People who question, and I'm not, again, I'm not trying to play the God card and say that I'm right all the time. But I tremble at times and I shake literally my knees almost knocked together when I think of the Apostle Paul saying these words. He looked the people of God in the eye and he said, as I follow Jesus, you follow me. That made me think of this this week. If our church and the level of its spirituality and the level of its success was measured by the level of your spirituality, how spiritual or sinful would our church be? If everyone in our church prayed to the same level that you pray, how prayerful would this church be? Now, I told you I thought of that this week. I was in the truck by myself. I was saying, God... How am I leading by following? How well am I following? I value the greater good of this congregation, so my heart's desire is not to ever present a front that says I'm perfect, but I want to do all that I can to be a model of what it means to walk with Christ, to know and grow and go. I want to be a model for what it means to make him known to our neighbors, the nations, and the next generation. And Joshua was a man committed to that. And here we see as he goes before those tribes, this is what God's called us to do. Will you stick to your word? And they deferred their own preferences and said yes when I get somebody that walks in my office and they say I don't like this that or the other I try with all that I can to listen and say is there some biblical reason we shouldn't do this that or the other and if we have clearly said this is a biblical direction then you and I better make sure that we're in the word and when you come with that complaint, you better come with a biblical reason because godly followers value the, the greater good of the community. Does that make sense? And they unite around a common task. They unite around a common task. I love this. 
they had confidence in Joshua. He had proved he knew the word. He made decisions by the word. He's committed to the word from his heart, not outside pressure. And because of that, when disappointments would come and struggles would come, they knew that he had filtered everything through the word of God. May we be that way. I I, I need to say this at times. When we come to a major decision, I need to say, I'm not 100% sure this is going to work. I don't need to be an infomercial and say, oh, listen, if we build this building or we spend that money or if we do this program, it's going to be perfect and everybody ought to get on board today. When I do that, you probably ought to step back and go, okay, our pastor's being a little pushy. Here's what I need to say from time to time. I'm not 100% sure what we're about to do is going to work. But I might make that decision based on a statement like this. I'm sure 100% what we're doing is not working. There are times that if we're not doing evangelism at all, if we're not sharing the gospel, I've had people that have given me every excuse not to put their testimony on whativaluemost.com. I don't want my information out there on the Internet. Guess what, sweetie? It's already there. I can pull up Google Maps right now and I can look and see what you're going to have for lunch in your window. No, it's not that creepy. But I can see a map of your house. Why would you not want the world to know that you belong to Jesus? Mark and I sat in my office just a few minutes ago and I explained to him what I've explained to everyone I've ever baptized, that baptism's like a wedding ring. I put this ring on because I made a commitment to Stephanie and I want the world to know it. If I take this ring off, I'm still married. If I give this ring to you, you're not now married to Stephanie. I I wear the ring because I'm married, not the other way around. I'm not married because I have this ring on. If that were the case, there would probably be a lot of young single girls that would just go buy a wedding. Hot dog, I, I found me a man. I put the ring on. No, that's not how it works. Why would you not want the world to know that you belong to Jesus? And so if you fight me on this one, I've said, I'll type your story for you. I'll upload your story for you this week. And it's happened every week since I've been here. Somebody has said, I got an email. Somebody read my story on whativaluemost.com. If one of the values of this church is we want to know Christ and make Him known, that's one of the biggest megaphones I can give you. 120 different countries those stories have been read in. I've told you the story. I had a sweet little lady in her mid-80s who had never owned or touched a computer, and and I wrote her story with her. I sat down, and I wrote it out, and I typed it up, and I put it on there, and the response center from the North American Mission Board called her and said, Susan in Indiana has trusted Christ after reading Mildred's story. Mildred will be in heaven, and she'll meet Susan and Mildred in her mid-80s simply said, I want everybody to know I belong to Jesus. Some of you have said, I don't have a story to tell. Mildred got saved when she was five. She had not knocked over any liquor stores by that point in her life. She did not have this grandiose testimony of gang activity at four and a half. Her parents were faithful church members, and she trusted Jesus Christ as a natural response to healthy, godly leadership. She has a story to tell. She passed from death to life. She was headed for hell, and now she's headed for heaven. She was uh, spending her life alone, separated from Christ, and now she's in Christ. So if you 
have been saved, you have a story. I, I share all that simply to say, I realize everything that I'm telling you is going to stretch us. And, and I'm not launching into some brand new initiative and changing everything around here. What I am saying is in the coming days, we are going to intensify our focus on making disciples that make disciples that make disciples. I'm going to intensify my desire to meet with small groups of people around cups of coffee and lots and lots of good, sweet food, okay? Banana pudding, preferably. I'm just putting that bug in your ear. If I invite you, you better make one now. I, I just want us to get together. And I want us to spend time around the Word of God saying how can we become a catalyst for a spiritual awakening in the Pine Belt. I, I love this story. We're going to continue tracking through it for a couple of months as we look at this. God has made the promise. He says, prepare the people. I, I think it's interesting. Joshua talked to those two and a half tribes himself. He didn't put it off on somebody else. There are times that hard conversations need to be had. There are times that I'll stand in the midst of those and I'll, I'll deal with some of those hard situations. But I pray that I've got officers around me that can pass through the camp and say, this is where God wants us to go. Not this is where Scott wants us to go. This is God's desire. God's desire. I, I put in your notes just a couple of very simple questions to finish up. What are the boundaries of your obedience? Be honest. What are you willing to do for Christ and what are you unwilling to do for Christ? What is it that if God called you to do, you would say, nope, sorry God, I'll go this far but not that far. Maybe, just maybe, you need to evaluate those things. The people of God said, God, I know you promised we even have report, we have clusters of grapes that two men had to carry. We, we see a land flowing with milk and honey. Provision, purpose, wonderful, wonderful things. God, we're scared to go that far. That's too far. And they wandered in disobedience for 40 years. And listen, an entire generation of people died out. God, let the people in the wilderness see a funeral after funeral after funeral every day for 40 years. Are we going to have to die out and move out of the way before God begins to move in this congregation to see that which God wants to happen? It's not about age. Many of these were young men that wandered for years and then died. It's about obedience. Are we willing to follow the Lord? Here's the question. Are we going to be a people mobilized for spiritual action? Let's pray. Father, we love you and thank you. Thank you for the example of this word. And God, thank you for the calling on our lives to be a disciple-making church. May we step into that purpose with great passion. In Jesus' name, amen. We're all going to stand and sing this morning with a, a hymn of decision. This is the opportunity. If you'd like to unite with our church, we have encouragers that have been trained in the Word of God just to share with you from the Word of God whatever decision.